Welcome back to Pesach Season of Our Deliverance. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi, and this is a brand new commentary for 2016. We are uh, about halfway through the commentary. You can um, follow along on the written version. Uh, just go to www.tatesaytorah.com and then click on the link on the top that says Holy Convocations. And then from there, click on the link that says um, uh, Major Festivals. And then scroll down the page and you should see the Passover commentary there. Of course, if you're following along with this during the Passover season 2016, when I'm actually recording it, then uh, if you're on my website, at the very, very top, there should be a link at the very top that says Current Festival, Pesach, Passover. Click for commentary. It's blue. Click that link, and it'll take you straight to the Passover page that I'm taking this study from. We've already listened to Part A. It's about 45 minutes long or so. And uh, in Part A, we looked at basically an introduction, and we read some liturgy. Uh, we read Exodus 13, 1 through 16 in the English, and then we also read the Hebrew. And then we started down through these five questions that I'm entertaining for this year's Passover commentary. Um, if you'll recall, I mentioned that the previous Passover commentary that I wrote um, 10 years ago in 2006, I have retired it. Basically, it's now an archive commentary. If you are interested in it, um, go ahead and shoot me an email. Uh, just scroll down. Uh, if you're on the website, scroll down to the bottom of the um, webpage, and there's a link down there. There's actually an icon at the very bottom of the page that looks like a envelope. Click on that, and it'll shoot me an email to Yeshua613 at Hotmail.com. Or if you're actually following along this commentary using the written version, the PDF version, maybe you've printed it out or you're looking at it on the Internet, um, scroll to the bottom of my commentary, and you'll see my email down there as well. But if you're interested in the um, previous commentary that I wrote 10 years ago where I talk about the timing of the Holy Week, uh, the um, uh, details surrounding... Um, whether or not Yeshua ate a Passover meal and was still uh, that, that uh, ate a Passover meal that included um, meat from the lambs that were slaughtered that day, or whether or not he was crucified on a Friday, whether or not he spent three days in the grave, uh, the the popular um, Passover timing issues that you're going to encounter in many other commentaries, which I've decided not to address this year. Uh, if you're interested in that. Um, uh, shoot me an email, and I'll be more than happy to send you a copy of it. There were accompanying audio uh, portions that went along with that podcast, and I'll have to figure out a way how to get those to you, maybe shoot you a link to them, because I'm going to pull those out of, I, uh, out of uh, iTunes as well. So we'll see what I need to do there. Uh, in the meantime, um, for this year's commentary, we are entertaining five questions that I've actually borrowed from my ebible.com uh, forum, uh, five questions that are related to the Passover season and related to um, keeping the, the the Passover as Gentile Christians. That's where I've decided to go this year. So there were five questions. Uh, number one, are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? That was question number one. And that's what we really addressed in the first part of part A of this commentary. And now we're poised to tackle the final four questions, which are, should uh, Christians celebrate Passover? Question number three is, what does Paul mean when he says to not let anyone judge us in regard to keeping the Sabbath? As you all know, 
um, the Passover season is considered a Sabbath season, especially the first day of uh, unleavened bread, the fifteenth of Nisan, is actually a, a, a Passover according to the Torah. I'm sorry, is actually a, a, a Sabbath according to the Torah. And then question number four: What does the Bible say about Christian liberty? That's another uh, question that we're going to address in this part. And then the last question that we'll look at will be, uh, what does it mean to be circumcised in Christ? And the reason I brought that question into this discussion is because circumcision uh, plays a prominent part in keeping the Passover, uh, particularly in the first century when the temple was uh, standing and people, participants, particularly males, were going to uh, consider partaking of the meat of a Passover lamb that was slaughtered at the temple. We're going to find out that the Torah prescribes physical circumcision for males who wish to um, participate in that particular meal. And so we're going to ask the question, do Christians have to be physically circumcised? Aren't they already circumcised in Christ? We'll talk about those things, okay? So uh, I don't think this will be a long part B. Uh, maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. We'll see what happens, okay? All right, let's, uh, let's get started with this question, should Christians celebrate Passover? Um, this is an interesting question because in my experience of um, working in and around Messianic circles, that, that would include Christian churches as well as uh, uh, Messianic Jewish synagogues and such, I hear this question tossed around a bit, and you'd be surprised about the answers. Um, here's what I have to say. In my opinion, the short answer is yes. Christians should celebrate Passover. Here's my reasoning. After all, Paul explicitly tells us to do so in 1 Corinthians 5.8, right? Here's what he says. Let's look up that passage. He says, quote, Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Actually, let me read the whole passage. Um, let me pull it up here. Here we go. The whole passage says, quote, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. End quote. Now, he could be talking about Passover on Nisan 14th. He could be talking about unleavened bread on Nisan 15th, because he does mention unleavened bread there. But I like to think that he's talking about um, Passover, since he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. And that's normally uh, the first day of Passover. The first celebration of the, of the Passover week is the 14th of Nisan when um, the children of Israel were commanded to partake of the uh, meal, that is, the lamb that was slaughtered and such. And so I like to think that Paul's really telling the Corinthians, let us keep the feast, let us therefore keep the festival. And then he goes on to tell us how to celebrate it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I, I understand that there's a midrash going on there. There's a, there's a, 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 a pastoral lesson that he's, a, that he's um, applying to the passage. But the point is, the point I'm trying to make is that he actually tells us to keep it, right? Doesn't he just say that? Let us therefore celebrate the festival? He doesn't... In other words, there's something that we're celebrating. Now, some of you are going to say, well, he's talking about a, um, a communion service, or he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Okay, granted, granted, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with that here in the rest of this question, but either way, there's something that he is enjoining upon us as believers to keep, right? So let's get that out of the way first. I think we can all agree that he actually tells us to do something. So, in my opinion, whoever says that the New Testament doesn't command Gentile believers to keep parts of the Torah has obviously missed this particular verse, because I think he's talking about the Passover. All right, let's keep reading. Now, um, the Passover itself, as you 
are all probably quite aware. The Passover itself first is introduced to us in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, in the Torah. And, of course, this is the um, the story of the exodus from Egypt, the Yitz, Yitziat Mitzrayim. And therefore, traditional Judaism, na- uh, national Jews, uh, natural Jews, they have been keeping the Passover for thousands of years, long before the quote-unquote Christian church arrived on the scene. Right? So, it's only natural to um, want to perhaps just pick up where they left off when, when I talk about keeping the Passover as believers. Um, and in, in, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with the tradition of the Passover that has been uh, preserved for us by traditional Judaism. However, that particular Passover um, misses the Messiah, right? Most traditional, in fact, all traditional Jewish Passovers that are not Messianic they miss the Messiah Yeshua, and thus they do not have the the most crucial ingredient that my in my opinion that should be part of the Passover seders that I am um, inviting Christians into the ones that I'm enjoining Christians to keep uh, Gentile Christians to be sure, and so in my opinion the, the the traditional Passover doesn't have to simply become the default model for our own Messianic Passover observances. Now we can. And we should borrow traditions from Judaism that honor Hashem. Anything that honors God is a good tradition, right? As long as it upholds his laws, as long as it um, um, recognizes his lordship, then, and as long as it's rooted in the text, basically, then we can't go wrong as long as we're following what the text says. And as long as we're imitating the Messiah. And after all, he did what the text said. He imitated his father. He, he did, he, what does what the verse say? He ever lived to do the father's will. So we must be careful to always take our final orders from the master and from the apostolic scriptures. True, that is where our halakha is rooted in. It's rooted in the scriptures of, that were given to Israel, which of course is the Tanakh, but also the apostolic scriptures which form the completion to the uh, the Tanakh itself. You can't have one without the other. And so for Messianic Jews and Gentiles, we take the Bible as our final authority. Now, this means our Torah observance, um, when compared to, say, traditional Jewish Torah observance, it's going to necessarily differ, right? It's going to differ just a bit. And that's because we follow the true rabbi named Yeshua. His name is Jesus. We follow his halacha. So... Uh, first thing we need to um, remember is that when in doubt, side with Scripture instead of tradition. If you've got a question, should we be doing this? Should we include this in our Passover? Should we be doing this on our seders? Uh, things like that. Side with Scripture instead of tradition. But that doesn't mean you need to throw out tradition, right? You don't have to jettison tradition. Like I said, as long as a tradition is uh, supported by the text and it doesn't do damage to the text... And even if it's not found in the text, I, I, I know people who say, I'm only going to do what the Bible says. Well, you can't live your life completely that way because the Bible is too general, it's too broad, and there are, there's too many details that are missing when it comes to everyday living um, from a practical perspective. But the, fa- the, the Bible is the foundation, it's the blueprint, it's the, um, it is the final authority when it comes to matters of decision that we need to make within our communities, especially as believers. So don't, don't, reject tradition, just make sure that tradition lines up with scripture. And also, don't just do something because it's Jewish, right? Don't do it just because the Jews, uh, the Jewish people are doing it. Don't do it, do it just because Jews do it. 
in other words, don't assume that the Jewish people are right just because they've been doing this thing for thousands of years. They have strayed far from the path. Oh, I shouldn't say that. that. That sounds too negative. Let me say it this way. To the degree that the church also has, has um, is in need of some correction when it comes to scripture, when it comes to uh, tradition, when it comes to um, uh, obedience, Judaism as well has strayed. They have erred uh, in some of their ways, in many of their ways. And so um, the point I'm trying to make is um, uh, don't be too harsh on Judaism, but at the same time, don't just um, swallow everything uh, uh, wholesale, right? I think you guys get the point. Okay, let's keep reading. Um, I believe that the, um, now talking about the, the, the Lord's Supper, I actually believe that the current Lord's Supper that we're fond of um, participating in or that we're fond of... of um, of uh, holding in our churches, I think I think there are actually many Passovers, right? There, there are Passover minis, Passover light. Um, I really do, and and here's why. Um, basically, the Lord's Supper, the communion services with the small cup of juice and, or or wine, and the, uh, the 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 broken bread or the, the matzah pieces or the crackers or whatever it is that your church engages in. Uh, it is a recollection of what Yeshua did for us that night before he died, that day before he died, the evening before, uh, th that last evening that he spent on earth in Jerusalem. So we know that the Lord's Supper um, is uh, something that is recognized by the Apostolic Scriptures, but the, the Lord's Supper itself was, if we can call it that, was really the Messianic um, the Messianic fulfillment of the Passover. So let me just read my commentary and you'll see what I'm talking about here. If my postulation is true, then, albeit in a drastically reduced form, most Christians are actually already celebrating the Passover. So when I talk about Christians keeping the Passover, if you are a Christian listening to my commentary, and you've actually uh, had the Lord's Supper or communion, if you're Catholic, if you've had communion before, then in my opinion, you're actually keeping the Passover. You, you probably just don't call it the Passover, and you may not have known that you're actually celebrating one of the central elements of the Passover, right? To be sure, as I mentioned, Yeshua's last supper with his disciples was a kind of a fusion of the traditional Passover with the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? A fusion where the two were put together, where we took, where Yeshua took the historical Passover as was... Um, um, given and celebrated and uh, recognized by ancient Israel for thousands of years. And then he took his own blood, body and blood, and his own uh, death and resurrection and such, and he, and he put it into the Passover where it belonged. It's not that he, he embellished on the text. He didn't pull a Hollywood um, uh, thing where they, you know, they where they make these movies out of uh, scripture, yet they they add so much that was really not in it's not that's not what Yeshua did. Rather, the scriptures all along pointed to Messiah. The Passover pointed to Yeshua all along. So he simply just turned on the light and showed his disciples and indeed showed us uh, by his example, by his teachings, showed us what the true and intended meaning of the Pesach was from the beginning. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the one. He is the true bread come down from heaven, right? His blood is that which cleanses us and makes us whole, makes us clean, 
brings us into right relationship with the Father. So uh, we know that that's what's going on. So communion didn't replace Passover. I mean, if it did, Paul's instructions that we just read a moment ago about celebrating the festival, they would make nonsense, right? Where Paul says, let us keep the feast. But if communion did away with the Passover, then what feast is Paul talking about? So I don't think that uh, communion replaces Passover. Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles, in my opinion, are expected to incorporate the Lord's Supper into the Mosaic Passover in order to highlight what our Savior did for us on the cross. And that's the point I'm trying to make today. As Jews and Gentiles, Passover celebrates our freedom from Egypt. Remember, there was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. And so when I say our deliverance from Egypt, obviously this means natural Jews because we were delivered. We were sons of Jacob. We were within the loins of our forefathers when they came out of Jacob. I'm sorry, came out of Egypt that day. But because it's a mixed multitude, we can safely make an, a, a, a kind of an application that the Gentile nations were also represented by the mixed nationalities in terms of ethnicities, etc., that we read about in, uh, say, Exodus 12, 38, where it says a mixed multitude came out that day. So if you're listening to this commentary today and you're a believer in Yeshua and you are a Gentile, you're not Jewish, I'm here to tell you that the Passover is for you as well, because your ancestors were there. They came out of Egypt as well. So, so to say, that's the picture being painted by the um, the uh, the verse in Exodus 12:38, where it talks about the mixed multitude. That's why it's included in the passage. The death of the lamb that day secured their escape. All of them. It secured their escape from the death angel, and their escape from Egypt. Right? They all were set free. All then came to the foot of Sinai. And then what happens? Something wonderful happens. They were declared to be Israel. Israel, that's right. That's the name that was given to them by God himself. Read Exodus 19, 1 through 6 all over again, okay? And keep that in mind. When the people came out of Egypt, the mixed multitude came out. They marched through the desert, through the Red Sea. They were brought to the foot of Sinai. And then God doesn't say, okay, sons of Jacob and the rest of you all. That's not how God addresses them. He calls them all Israel. And that's why I believe that the Passover is for Israel, which includes uh, Jews and Gentiles, who were both brought under the umbrella known as uh, Israel, the umbrella term, I should say. Um, the, the identification of Israel applies to Jew and Gentile alike. As long as they have been redeemed by the blood and as long as they are in covenant with God, then you can wear that label. So the exodus from Egypt as such forms the antecedent theology, the the, the, uh, the um the, the, the physical uh, deliverance from Egypt, the historical account that we read about in Exodus every year, um, this forms uh, what we know as the antecedent theology to understand that each one of us was set free from our own personal Egypt of sin and shame, right? Even if you don't want to um, follow along with uh, my teaching, my, my conviction that um, the physical deliverance from Egypt applies to you because you were within the loins of your ancestors, who were delivered thousands of years ago, even if you don't want to follow that logic, you still have to apply the, 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 um, the spiritual principle as a believer. You know that Egypt is a type and shadow of sin and bondage in the Bible. And you know that because the, um, the, the, the picture 
that's being um, taught to us, painted by the Torah in the book of Exodus, is that only exclusively by the blood of the Lamb will you be saved from the wrath of the death angel. And we know that the picture being painted is one of Yeshua's blood delivering us from the wrath of God to come. Yeshua's blood is the only blood that can save. Therefore, we know that from a spiritual principle perspective, that the Passover principle applies to all believers who have been truly set free by the blood of the Messiah. Amen? So, it's only natural to teach that um, since the Lord's Supper celebrates the death of the spotless lamb, not his resurrection, by the way, just the death of the lamb, because that's what was going on in the Passover picture as well. There's no resurrection of the lamb in the in the Exodus Passover, have you guys uh, uh, have you guys ever stopped to kind of ponder that that in the Exodus from Egypt, the lamb that gets slaughtered and the blood placed on the lintel and the doorpost and and such and roasted, that lamb doesn't resurrect three days later, right? That's a different picture. That's for a different time. A resurrection shows up later on in the Torah somewhere else, but for the time being, God doesn't. God's not teaching resurrection at the moment. The people need to believe in the death of the Lamb, not in the resurrection of the Lamb for the moment. So the the um, the Lord's Supper itself also highlights the death. Most people say, no, it doesn't. It highlights the resurrection. Really? Go back and read Matthew 26, 28 again. Go back and read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Tell me. Tell me what those passages say. I'll just tell you up front. They talk about remembering his death. Paul talks about in the Corinthians passage, this way we, we um, commemorate the death until Yeshua comes. So, since that's the case, and since Gentiles are grafted into remnant Israel, uh, which we're going to talk about later on in this, uh, um, I'm sorry, which we already talked about in the uh, part one A, where we talked about um, who is Israel and who's not, right? If you missed that part, go back and listen to part A. But Gentiles are grafted into remnant Israel, and as such, Gentile believers take their place alongside believing Jews. We're all brought in together in the body of Messiah. And therefore, in my opinion, it only makes sense to put the Torah Passover, the historical one, and the Lord's Supper, put them together just as Paul did, no doubt, for his first century communities, and just like the Messiah demonstrated for us. Okay, So I think that's probably the better way to understand the question and the answer. Should Christians celebrate Passover? Well, if you're already celebrating the Lord's Supper, on the one hand, you're, you're already partaking of a mini Passover. All, all I'm really inviting you to do is to just um, take it one step further. Just expand your, um, your experience. Expand your, your uh, knowledge of the situation. Expand your, um, uh, what do we say? Expand your possibilities when it comes to walking in obedience to the text, okay? Okay, this is now the third question, and the question reads, What does Paul mean when he says to not let anyone judge us in regard to keeping the Sabbath? All right, let's, this is going to be an interesting one, so let's uh, look at this question and the answer. You all know that the seventh-day Sabbath is not the only Sabbath in the Bible. Actually, each of the feasts of Leviticus 23 is considered a Sabbath as well. To include the Passover week, the Passover, of course, we know included unleavened bread, on the first day and on the eighth day, or the seventh day, depending on where you're starting your count, and um, therefore the Passover itself is uh, the Passover slash unleavened bread is essentially a Sabbath. And um, when I have found that when discussing the topics of um, whether or not 
uh, Gentile Christians should be keeping Passover, like we just talked about in the previous question. I find that often one of the pushbacks is this particular verse that we're going to uh, look at. Um, uh, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So um, let's look at this. Many Christians quote this passage. It gets brought up, as I say, in defense of why Passover should not be used as a point of judgment towards Christians who do not celebrate it like many Messianic Jews, and I'm happy to say a growing number of Messianic Gentiles do. Truthfully, as a side note, I don't think believers should be falsely judging one another over any issue. However, that doesn't mean that we don't have the responsibility to strengthen one another with uh, counsel, to, um, to uh, what do we say, um, encourage one another to press in towards greater levels of obedience and holiness. Uh, we certainly have the responsibility of providing correction for our brothers and sisters in the Lord when we see them stepping out of obedience or stepping out of line or stepping into sin. It's our responsibility. Uh, it's a biblical responsibility. It's a biblical mandate, actually, to, um, uh, to point out uh, mistakes that we see uh, not in a judgmental fashion, not a, in a lording over fashion, but in a in the spirit of love and of admonition. So that's why I also mentioned in my commentary that, um, in my opinion, we need to continue to keep that mindset uh, because we've got an ever-growing relationship with with our Lord, with Yeshua. Uh, I'm sorry, with uh, an ever-growing relationship with God through His Son Yeshua, and so that's why we have this responsibility towards one another in the body. So allow me to address this question for us here in my Pesach commentary. I actually want to offer an explanation that I don't hear too often in churches. Um, most of you are familiar with how Colossians 2, 16 and 17 gets interpreted. But um, let me offer an explanation I don't think that you're going to hear very often, yet I think has um, historical credibility. Let me read the verse first, okay? Uh, here's the verse in full, quote, let, I'm sorry, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, end quote. That's Colossians 2, 16 and 17. I think that's ESV if I'm correct. Now, notice in the verse that it mentions uh, festivals and Sabbaths. So, because the um, Passover with unleavened bread is both a festival and a Sabbath. So let's talk about this verse. Now, uh, first of all, I want to ask just a question right up front, a question to my average Christians. Why do we have to translate the verses if Paul were telling these Messianic Gentiles in the passage in, Col in Colossians? Why do we have to translate it like this? Quote, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, okay? Quote, this would be Paul talking to these Gentile Christians. Don't let anyone presumably Messianic Jews judge you for not keeping kosher, for not keeping the feasts, and not keeping the Sabbaths just like they do, those Messianic Jews. Those things are just shadows. You have the substance which is in Christ. Okay? End quote. That's how the verse is usually translated, isn't it? I mean, I could line up a hundred pastors, well-meaning as they are, and nearly a hundred of them are going to translate the verse like this. They're going to say Paul's explaining to his Gentile Christians that they don't have to let people judge them for not keeping, for not keeping. And the point I'm trying to highlight is that most pastors make the assumption that Paul is 
comforting the Gentile Christians for being judged about not keeping the festivals. But is that really what history tells us what was going on? I think this interpretation doesn't fit with the historical accounts of who was judging whom and why. So let's see if we can get some help from context and from history. If we actually back up into the chapter of, of uh, Colossians here, we can gain a better context in which to work from. Uh, now we know from um, Colossians 2, 6 through 15, if we were to read that, we know that Paul is admonishing his readers about the wonderful forensic realities, the wonderful um, uh, positional realities that they now possess in Messiah, right? You can go back and read those verses. Um, we also know, if we were to, say, pull in some of Paul's other teachings, say Romans 11, we know there that Gentile believers have been grafted into Israel, right? If we were to also pull in, say, the theology of Ephesians chapter 2, we know that Gentile Christians have been brought near to God and to the commonwealth of Israel as fellow heirs and fellow citizens. So, um, uh, let's bring in, um, let's take those passages and l allow it to form the context of the first century um, social groups that Paul was writing to, particularly the Gentile Christians in Colossians. And I think if we do so, we're going to see that there's a little more than there's a little more to it than the average uh, Christian pastor has been explaining. And I'm not trying to fault them. I think it's just a case of uh, a bit of of, um, of mistaken historical relevance when it comes to um, things related to Torah. Uh, or it could be an agenda to keep Gentile Christians from keeping Torah. But the point I'm trying to make is, let's just let uh, history and the text um, form our theology here. So, uh, using Romans 11 and Ephesians 2, then we can uh, begin to understand that the Gentile Christians have received... Um, something that Paul would describe as the more important circumcision of the heart. And we know that's uh, where Paul is leading. In fact, in Colossians 2, 11, just before, you know, a few verses before the ones that we're examining, Paul says, quote, In him, speaking of Yeshua, uh, in him you, these Gentile Christians, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And we're going to look at circumcision of Christ, uh, circumcision in Christ. Uh, what does it mean to be circumcised in Christ? We're going to look at that as our final question in my commentary today. So these Gentile Christians really have it all. They've got the true and greater circumcision of the heart. They've got um, um, identification within the commonwealth of Israel, they've been brought near to the people of God, their fellow heirs and fellow citizens, and they've been grafted into remnant Israel. So they are part of the olive tree that Paul describes in Romans 11. So it is in this context that Paul comforts his readers with the famous passage that we read in Colossians 2 16 and 17 about don't let anyone judge you. But notice he tells them not to let anyone, and presumably this would be outsiders or pagans, or Jews and Gentiles outside of the Messiah, etc. Those are the ones who I believe Paul would naturally be associating with as those uh, leveling the judgment against these true believers. And so Paul tells them, don't let anyone out, don't let anyone judge you for who you really are, essentially, and what you do. 
You have a position in Messiah. Don't ever forget that. Don't let anyone denigrate that. Don't let anyone look down on you because of that. Now, of course, they're going to persecute you. There's nothing you can do about that. But don't let that discourage you from, from keeping your chin up, so to say, if we could turn it into a pep talk, even though we know it's more than that. No one can change who you are in the heavenlies, is the point I'm trying to make. Um, who you are and what you do in Yeshua is is approved by God himself, is what Paul would really uh, tell believers. In fact, we know that's what he basically tells them in Romans 14 and 15. You are the righteousness of God in Messiah, Paul tells them in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so, for that reason... The Gentile Christians can cry hallelujah. And that's what I hope you're, you're, you're shouting today. Hallelujah. I'm the righteousness of God and Messiah. It's not because of things that I've done on my own. It's not because of a righteousness of my own. It's because of the, uh, the Father's intense love for me, as has been demonstrated by his son Yeshua. So it's in this context of, of this admonition of who they are and, and what they do in Messiah, it's within this context that Paul comforts his readers with the famous passage in Colossians two sixteen and 17. Um, why would they be the object of judgment by outsiders at all? I think you guys could probably guess. History shows us that pagans and Gentiles outside of Messiah, at least those in Paul's day, would often judge Gentile Christians for no longer attending the state-required emperor celebrations, you know, the ones with all their lewd... Uh, their vile lewdness, their demon worship, uh, their blood rituals, their nudity, their sexual promiscuity, and their all-purpose pagan pageantry. The Gentile Christians were delivered from that lifestyle. They were set free from that bondage. And as such, they were admonished, nay, they were commanded by Paul to walk away from that, to run away from that, to flee that former lifestyle and to put on, as it were, like a like a new coat to put on the, the 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 mind of Christ and the life of Christ, and so they're naturally going to be met with opposition from friends and family members, former colleagues, former associations, people that they used to run with when they were sinners. You guys know where I'm going with this. I'm speaking to the choir, it could, because you experience it today when you get set free from your old life of of running with gangs or. Uh, uh, doing drugs or or um, a life of of lasciviousness, a life of of sexual license. When you when you get delivered by the power of the risen Messiah, and you turn your life around and you choose to follow Jesus instead of following after the old way, instead of following after your flesh, when you choose to follow the light instead of darkness, well then the darkness is going to it's going to it's it's going to persecute you. It's going to um um mock you. Uh, people who still walk in darkness are going to, they're not going to understand why you left that lifestyle behind, and so naturally they're going to uh, uh, belittle you and things like that. And so it's no different in Paul's day, right? That this judgment would eventually fall upon them is a given, and Paul challenges them to hold their ground. And so it's, this is why I say it's more than just a pep talk. He's challenging them to stay the course and not return to the former life of debauchery that they have been graciously rescued from. So keep following my um, context that I'm building up with, building up to in this uh, passage here in, first, in uh, Colossians. Okay, it's with this context in mind. 
Gentile Christians who were grafted into Israel, brought near to the commonwealth of Israel, and be, be, uh, have been made familiar now with the, the promises and the truths and the scriptures that God gave Israel, right? It's these people that Paul is talking to. So, scripture likewise attests, now we're going to fast forward to the, uh, the book of Acts or such, um, scripture tells us that Gentiles attracted to Israel's God and Israel's laws would attend the synagogue alongside the Jews. Go ahead and read the numerous accounts in the book of Acts, and you'll see that this is true. And so after coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah, it's only natural for these Messianic Gentile believers to do what? To begin walking out the Torah just like their Messianic Jewish brothers were doing already. However, the unbelieving Jewish leaders this time would always become jealous and outraged that Paul was teaching these Messianic Gentiles about their equality to Jews in Messiah. That's right. Read through the book of Acts and you'll see that the unsaved Jews always became outraged whenever the Gentiles were responding positively to the gospel message. And so we know that the gospel message includes the equality of Jew and Gentile in Messiah, the equality of Jew and Gentile as genuine covenant members, the equality of Jew and Gentile as bona fide sons of Abraham, made righteous the same way that Abraham was made righteous, right? Trust in the Lord, trusting in the word of the Lord. So these, these unbelieving Jews are going to become upset about that. How dare you try to make yourself equal with us? You don't have the same standing as us. And the only way we can kind of make sense of the animosity that I'm describing now is to remember that the Judaisms of Paul's day practice uh, what I like to call a social class or caste system in which Gentiles were not worthy to be counted as genuine covenant members in Israel without first going through a ceremony of the proselyte in which they would come out the other end as legally recognized Jews. You see where I'm going with this? And um, it's within that social um, worldview that Paul writes these instructions in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. That's how we need to understand the background behind his readership, the background behind the persecution that's going to be coming at these new Gentile believers. So, um, the worldview that Paul lived in, that the worldview that Paul was delivered from in that sense, he used to, he used to believe this mindset. He used to, to hold to this uh, halakha where Jews and Gentiles were separated because of their ethnicity and because of uh, their supposed uh, covenant membership, which was defined along lines of ethnicity. Paul used to toe that party line. We know so because he tells us in the book of Galatians. But, in this imbalanced view, I call it imbalanced, this imbalanced view of covenant membership, the one that I'm describing, the Torah itself was seen as a Jewish-only document. It was the exclusive possession of Jewish Israel. It was seen as kind of like a, um, a badge or a trophy that God uh, awarded his specially chosen covenant people that from their self understanding was um, was defined by their Jewish ethnicity. In other words, God himself was the God of the Jews only. The Spirit was only given to Jews. 
the covenants were only for Jews, the Torah was only for Jews, and therefore the promises of the world to come, the age to come, the Olam Haba, the promises of salvation, these were all Jewish, these were all Jewish, ex- exclusively Jewish um, uh, blessings, exclusively Jewish uh, um, uh, concepts. And therefore, Gentiles wishing to be included in, in any of that, from God to the covenants to Torah to salvation, all of it, if, if Gentiles wish to take part and to be recognized among the quote-unquote righteous, then they had to be Jewish as well. And that was the worldview that Paul lived in. Not, not, the, not that Paul agreed with it. Again, Paul was delivered from that when his eyes became opened. But because the traditional Jewish leaders of Paul's day still hold still held to that party line, they still held to that theology, then it's natural for them to be jealous of the Gentile Christians who are being brought into God's family, God's um, scriptures, you know, God's promises through the Torah, God's promises of Messiah, God's blessings of the Spirit, and of course God's promise of salvation. The Gentiles who are being brought into this family without also being Jewish, Come on, that was too much. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's why they were, uh, those, gen- those uh, 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 Jewish leaders were so uh, enraged about the message that Paul was teaching. All right, so that's what we need to remind ourselves of about when we're reading this passage in Galatians. In their eyes, the eyes of the, uh, the unbelieving Jews, the Gentiles had no right to keep the feasts of the Jews. They had no right to keep our feasts. They are ours. They're not yours even if you believe in our Messiah, even if you call yourselves believers in our Jewish Messiah. Now, recall in Acts 15.5 that even some believing Pharisees wanted these Gentile Christians to become what? Jews before they could be received in the community. Isn't that right? Acts 15.5. It's necessary to circumcise them, which is code word for become a Jew. It's necessary to circumcise them and to instruct them to keep the laws of Moses. In other words, it's necessary for the, to, to regulate not only their, their membership into the community, but to micromanage their maintenance of covenant membership through the keeping of the commandments, which, is, which was, in Paul's day, the way that a Jewish person, um, uh, the way he had a, a kind of an assurance uh, that he was still a good standing covenant member by keeping himself away from idolatry, by bringing the prescribed sacrifices, by paying his dues, so to say. That's basically what um, maintenance of covenant membership entailed. That's basically how Torah maintenance or Torah obedience was, um, how, how it was uh, micromanaged in the first century. The, the, the leaders of Israel made sure that the members of the community, the members of the covenant, covenant members, they made sure that they paid their dues, so to say, and, and the, the payment was basically uh, Torah obedience, um, keeping away from idolatry, um, you know, showing up at, uh, during the festivals, things like that. So, but you could only do this if you were a Jew. You could only do this if you were a Jew. So Gentiles wishing to be included in the festivals, to be um, counted among the righteous of the community, they were, they were shunned. They were ostracized by those Jews who believed that the Torah was a Jewish-only document. So, this is the way, this is the better way for us to understand the context of Paul's admonition, his, uh, his comforting words in Colossians. Um, 
Paul came basically to set the record straight in Yeshua. He came to set the record straight that in Messiah, the Messianic Gentiles have every right to keep kosher, they have every right to keep the feasts, they have every right to keep the Torah just like the Messianic Jews do. And why and how could Paul teach this? Because both people groups, as long as they're in Messiah, they both constitute the remnant of Israel. The Torah is not a Jewish-only document, but it is an Israel-only document. The only way that the world, the only way that the surrounding nations can be brought into the within the scope of uh, covenant membership is to be found within Israel, because God God only cut a covenant with Israel. God exclusively cut a covenant with Israel. And therefore, the nations get brought into Israel, and therefore they are brought into Messiah. Uh, let me say it this way. They are brought into Israel via faith in Messiah. And they this means that they don't become Jews. They do become Israelites. That's the point I'm trying to make. We could say it this way. In my understanding of Scripture, I believe that every single believer is an Israelite, but not every single Israelite is a Jew. See my point? Israel is actually a bouquet of Jews and Gentiles together. And without both elements, Israel is not Israel. That's what we learned in part A. Israel must be Jew and Gentile in order for Israel to be Israel. Because that's the way that God designed it. And that's why it's such a... a um, that's why it's such, there's such a, a concerted spiritual attack on any theology that teaches equality of Jew and Gentile in Messiah and equality to, uh, towards the, in regards to um, a shared covenant responsibility when it comes to keeping the Torah. There's such a concerted um, um, pushback, a resistance by the adversary and the forces of darkness that don't want this particular message being taught to Jews and Gentiles. That's the point I'm trying to make. So, as I close out this particular question, the verse actually should be interpreted, in my opinion, having said all of that, we should actually have Paul telling these Messianic Gentiles, are you guys ready for this? This is my paraphrase of the passage. So, listen to this. Quote, Don't worry, this is Paul talking to the Gentile Christians. Quote, Don't worry if the unbelieving religious Jews judge you for keeping kosher. Don't worry if they judge you for keeping the feasts. Don't worry if they judge you for keeping the new moons and the Sabbath observances without becoming legally recognized Jews first. Don't worry if you're going to be judged for doing them. You are grafted into Israel as Gentiles via your faith in the King of Israel. In the end you will most likely get kicked out of their synagogues and out of their festive celebrations because you did not change your ethnicity, because you did not go through the ceremony of a proselyte and take on legally recognized Jewish status. And so, in the end, you're going to be kicked out and you're probably not even going to be able to keep these festivals the way you'd like to. In fact, outside of the community of Israel, you won't have a mechanism for actually keeping the feasts and the fast and the and the sacrifices, etc. You won't even be able to, to do them the way you'd like to. But don't worry, don't worry. Those things are important. They are important to God, and they are important to us as a community. However, they are shadows, nonetheless. They are shadows. They are secondary. You actually have the primary. You have the substance. 
that those shadows point to within yourselves. And what is that? You have the substance of Messiah. The Messiah is the substance. So even if they kick you out of the synagogues, and they will, even if they put you out of their communities, and they will, even if they mock you and persecute you because you don't conform to the uh, halakha, uh, the uh, halakha of the proselyte uh, ceremony, the halakha of the of the um, of the uh, proselyte um, uh, teachings and such, and they will. Don't worry. You have the substance, which is Messiah. Okay, end quote. That's basically, I think, how the verse should be interpreted, right? You guys, what do you, what do you think? For those of you who have a serious pushback on the way I just interpreted that verse, drop me a line. I'd be more than happy to dialogue with you and find out where I'm missing this, where I'm misunderstanding this passage, okay? All right. With that, we're ready to go on to question number four, okay? What does the Bible say about Christian liberty? Now, we already, know, we already know that one of the central themes associated with Passover is freedom. Freedom, right? Liberty. Paul speaks prominently of freedom in the book of Galatians. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Ariel, we're not in Galatians. We're in Exodus, right? Isn't this the Passover? Stick with me. Although the bondage of Galatians is not quite the same as the bondage we read about in the Passover story, nevertheless, the topic of exclusive freedom in Christ, in my opinion is always a worthwhile topic for discussion on and around the time of Passover. So, let's start with Paul's admonition in Galatians and work from there. Let me pull out a, papi- a, a familiar verse in the book of Galatians. We'll read that, and then we'll just midrash, okay? Galatians 5.1, quote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. End quote. All right, since... Exodus commemorates the deliverance from Egypt and from slavery and from bondage. Let's weave a a homily, a midrash, using the Exodus passages and the Galatians passage and talk about Christian liberty. First of all, what exactly is the slavery that Paul speaks of here in Galatians? I mean, to be uh, set free, we need to know, and to appreciate being set free, we need to know what it is our freedom entails. How is it that we are set free? And what then is our responsibility as freed persons? Well, we already know from reading the rest of the Bible that to be, quote, in Messiah, end quote, this is a phrase that is found quite prominently in Paul, to be in Messiah is to truly be free. It is to be truly free. Recall Yeshua's uh, declaration from John eight thirty six quote, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. End quote. That's from the KJV. So, we know that that's true freedom. How is it then that these Galatian Gentiles wish to return to the slavery that marked their former manner of life? Can't they see that anything less than a complete commitment to the true gospel is not good news at all? and will eventually result in slavery all over again? Can't they see that? I mean, those of you who are listening to my commentary, who are Christians, who are believers, who are Messianic Jews, etc., you know that if you start sinning all over again, if you return to former habits, former uh, hang-ups, former headaches, former heartbreaks, that you know that if you return to that junk, that sin can start creeping into your life at a dangerous rate, and it can begin to choke the life of what it means to be a, a son or daughter in Messiah. It can begin to choke the light out of you. And so it's a dangerous game to play with sin. We know that. 
Why would anyone want to return to that mess? Why would the pig want to return to the mud after having been washed off? As is to be expected, as we exegete this particular passage in Galatians, historic Christianity interprets the slavery of Galatians 5.1 as a return to Judaism. Right? A return to living within the confines of the Torah, of law observances, a return to Sabbaths, a return to keeping kosher, a return to keeping the feasts like Passover, and of course, a return to the ouch commandment, circumcision. Right? I mean, go ahead and do your own survey if you don't believe me. Um, take your uh, clipboard and your pen and go to about, say, ten churches and just ask the pastor, what is Galatians 5.1 talking about? What is the slavery that Paul's warning them away from? And I think you'll find that most churches will tell you, most pastors will tell you, that it's uh, the slavery of returning to the works of the law, the slavery of returning to Torah observance, the slavery of returning to Judaism as a lifestyle. And um, that's a sad commentary, in my opinion. That's, that's sad. Uh, because... Um, when we actually go back and study the historical and sociological context of the book of Galatians more closely, I think what we're going to discover is that the standard Christian interpretation of this verse actually doesn't fit very well with Paul's view of Torah, right? And most importantly, um, the standard Christian view actually doesn't follow from the scriptural view of Torah. So if we're going to try to fill in what the bondage is that Paul's talking about, we've got to take our cue straight from Paul and straight from the Torah, and we're going to find that neither Paul nor the Torah denigrate Torah observance, Judaism, Sabbaths, keeping kosher, and of course keeping the feast, or circumcision. Um, all of it's within context. The Torah itself is not bondage. The Torah itself is not bondage. It is not the bondage spoken of here in Galatians 5. And, I mean, think about it. If that were so, if, if the Torah were bondage, then what God gave Israel after he brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the foot of Sinai was a covenant of bondage, God forbid, right? Essentially, that's what that's the theology of the Christian interpretation of this particular passage. Which I'm sorry, I'm sorry to to be so so. Um, what do I say? I'm sorry to be so frank, but I think sometimes we need to be shocked back into reality. The Torah is not bondage. How can God's gracious laws be bondage? How can God's words of life be bondage? How could Moshe say, choose life or choose death, and the life that he's referring to is, is walking in the Torah? How can life be bondage? Right? The theology just doesn't line up. Besides, read Romans chapter 7 all over again. Paul talks about how the law is holy and, and righteous and good. It's spiritual. And how that with his mind, uh, he agrees uh, he affirms Torah. He also says in Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the uh, uh, the law through faith? God forbid we uh, establish the law. I can kind of paraphrase there. So let's keep reading in my commentary. Um, if one places their faith in something other than the Messiah, then that surely is bondage. And that's where Paul's going in this particular passage in Galatians chapter 5. The bondage and the slavery is a description of something, an, uh, an object of faith that is other than Yeshua. And what would that object have been? Well, in Paul's day, the, um, the popular notion, the popular belief, which we know is wrong now, but it was nevertheless um, championed in Paul's day and the, and the Jewish communities held to it, 
was that ethnicity or belonging to a people group was what gained you a status of righteous. So if one placed, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile, if one were to place his trust in ethnicity and or Torah obedience, then that type of person is truly a slave to their old nature, whether they know it or not. Because outside of the genuine freedom of Messiah, one is a slave to their old nature. We know this is true because that's what the Bible teaches us. This, the, the, the Torah teaches us that. That outside of the freedom of Messiah, we are all slaves to our old nature. We are all slaves actually to demons, Paul goes on to tell us. And so we do the bidding of the adversary. Whether we know it or not, we are in bondage. And it takes the light of Messiah to open our eyes and to recognize the freedom that we have in him and to begin to walk into the obedience that is outlined for us, not only in the pages of the Torah, but are outlined and modeled for us by the words and the actions of the Messiah himself. So we have to, to appropriate that first in order to appreciate the uh, from where we've come. What, what, what's the old saying? If you don't know where you've come from, then you can't appreciate where you're going. And so we know that we're going somewhere in Christ. We are on our way towards a glorious goal and a glorious end in the Messiah. But we have to appreciate that the Messiah delivered us from Egypt. That's why I think we need to read the Passover story year after year. We need to constantly remind ourselves and be aware of where we came from and how bitter slavery is so that we can never Never turn back to it again. Amen? Amen. So here in Galatians, among the Gentile Christians and the, the, uh, the influencers, the Judaizers, as some people call them, the agitators, as that shows up in other commentaries, I think the battle lines are being drawn. I think the battle lines are being drawn. And I don't think they're being drawn between the relevance of Torah versus, say, the relevance of Yeshua. I don't think that's where they were being drawn. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to get the Galatians to understand. I don't think he's get them, trying to get them to choose Yeshua versus Torah obedience. Instead, I think contextually that the lines were being drawn between the necessity of Jewish identity for covenant inclusion versus the necessity of falling on the mercy and grace of Messiah for genuine covenant membership and forgiveness of sins. Did you guys catch that? The lines were being drawn between Jewish ethnicity for covenant inclusion and being found in Messiah for genuine covenant membership and forgiveness of sins. There are two different paths. Paul doesn't need to denigrate the Torah by calling it a yoke of slavery because that's not the focus of the argument in the first place. Why would he even need to bring that into the argument in order to get the Galatian Christians to understand the choices that are laid before them? As we're going to see in the next verse, uh, as we keep exegeting uh, Galatians 5 here, we're going to see that um, circumcision itself is the fulcrum by which membership into first century Israel was being weighed. Circumcision. Now, then you have to stop and ask yourself, well, what does circumcision mean? Does he mean just the physical act? Is he talking about the surgical procedure? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, let's keep reading. The Galatian Gentiles were at the crossroads of decision. And that's why Paul uses such heavy language. Like, uh, remember in, in Galatians 3, he says, you foolish Galatians. David Stern's version says, you stupid Galatians, right? You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I mean, Paul wants to know, are they going to invest their faith in Jewish ethnicity? Or would they invest their faith in Jesus Christ, 
the one who died and rose again. In Galatians 2.21, let's just, let's just show you, let me show you here how Paul uses, um, uh, circumcision to describe ethnicity. In Galatians 2.21, we read, quote, and let me pull it up here. We read, quote, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, end quote. So let me describe this for you. We basically got a doorway or a prize, and there are two ostensible paths to this doorway. And the doorway is called righteousness, or the, the, the prize is called righteousness. The goal of this, in my little scenario that I'm describing for you, the goal is righteousness on the other side of the door. But there's actually two doors that, that you're presented with, and you can't see which door actually leads to righteousness and which one doesn't. You can't yourself. And so one of the doors is labeled the law in this passage, and one is labeled ethnicity. One is labeled ethnicity. Um, actually, you know what? My, my analogy is not very good. Let, let me describe it this way. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law. So in this verse, Paul simply describes, um, he describes this supposed path to righteousness as through the law. And, okay, yeah, my, my, my analogy is good. Um, we've, got, we've got righteousness as the goal. And, and there's two doors that supposedly lead to righteousness. In reality, only one of the doors does. But until you walk through the door, sometimes you don't know. Now, fortunately for us, in my little analogy, Paul actually does know. So you're standing there in front of two doors. One of the doors is labeled the, uh, through the law, and the other door is labeled Christ. Those are the two doors that we see in this verse. One of the doors is through the law, and the other door is labeled Christ. And on the other side of one of those doors is righteousness, the righteousness that's mentioned in the verse. And so Paul is trying to get you to understand that if you go through the door called the law, then the door called Christ is worthless. That's why he says, if righteousness is through the law, if you go through that door, then the door called Christ is worthless. Christ died for no purpose. The death of Christ is the, delay, the door label. All right, so that's Galatians 2.21. You guys following along with me? So the contest in the mind of Galatians in this particular verse, Galatians 2.21, uses the verbiage of Christ versus the law. However, comparatively, in Galatians 5.2, let's pull up that verse again, that verse reads, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, uh, it's the same scenario, except this time, we've got the same players, we've got you, we've got Paul, we've got two doors, except at this time, one of the doors is labeled circumcision, and the other door is labeled Christ. You see my point? So we've got a door called circumcision, a door called Christ. We've got you standing there, ready to go through the door called circumcision, to go through and, and on the other side gain what you think is called righteousness. But Paul is telling you, no. If you go through the door called circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. And notice the phrase in 5.2 where it says, Christ will be of no advantage to you, is parallel to uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, uh, then Christ died for no purpose. It's the same same logic, the same theology behind the phrases. So here in Galatians 5.2, the contest uses the verbiage of Christ versus circumcision. 
See what I'm saying? So really it's the same scenario. That's why when we get to 5.2, we can understand that circumcision, if we put the two, if we overlay the two examples that I just provided for you, basically circumcision is um, parallel to through the law. Through the law is parallel to circumcision. So now it just, it just behooves us to figure out what Paul means when he says circumcision or through the law. Now, after studying the Jewish background to Paul's life and knowing his propensity for carefully reasoned arguments, it should be made I'm sorry, it should be amply cleared by now that Paul did not mean Torah observance when he used the word law in Galatians 2.21. And by the same token, it should be amply clear that he does not simply mean physical circumcision when he uses the word circumcision in Galatians 5.2. So, what are our conclusions to question number four here? In Galatians 5.1 and 2, as well as Galatians 2.21 that we pulled into our example, Paul states that if the Galatians wish to continue down the road that was constructed by those false teachers, the road described by the first century Judaisms as, quote, the law, quote, under the law, quote, works of the law, quote, uh, quote, unquote, circumcision, these terms are all used interchangeably in the first century and within Paul's letters. And what do they all mean? They all basically... They all basically speak to the same thing, the same theology. If they go down that road and reject the free offer of genuine and lasting covenant membership into Israel as offered by God and outlined in the Tanakh, then, and this is using the language of 5, 1, and 2, then the work done by Yeshua's cross will indeed have no value for them at all. That's the point of the teaching. If they go, if they choose the wrong door, then the the, the true door will be worthless. It will be, have been valueless um, because number one, they're not going to reach the intended goal. They're not going to find the righteousness that they're seeking. They're not going to find genuine forgiveness because they're choosing the wrong path. Or to put it another way, the object of their faith is cast upon the wrong. Their faith is cast upon the wrong object. Their faith is in something that's mistaken. It's in something that's false. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, and I don't have time to develop it fully uh, here in this particular commentary, those terms, the law, under the law, works of law, circumcision, all of those things speak to the same, um, oh, uh, speak to the same concepts in Paul's day. And that was uh, an ethnic-driven membership into Israel that... Um, uh, allowed for an individual to maintain a, uh, a right standing in Israel by keeping his place as a Jewish member and by keeping the Torah. Or um, to use a phrase that James D.G. Dunn uses in his books, um, the works of the law appear to be those activities which express Jewish identity. Right? Works of law, under the law, circumcision, these are all activities that express Jewish identity. Doing what the law demands... Uh, James D.G. Dunn says, is a sign of adopting the Jewish way of life, the works of the law that is maintaining a Jewish lifestyle. So I like that term. Signs, uh, uh, activities which express Jewish identity. And notice that I keep emphasizing the Jewish part here. It's because from from the vantage point of the of the um, Judaism's of Paul's day, there was no there was no room for Gentiles in those in those promises. And we learned that in the previous uh, answers that we've been uh, talking about here. So that's the context here of of uh, of, um, of uh, uh, Christian liberty and the uh, Galatian uh, 
5, verse 1 and 2 passage, right? So, um, that being said, let's, let's finish this question out like this. Biblical freedom doesn't mean free from law. Biblical freedom does not mean free from law. Again, knowing that Yeshua set us free from sin, from its proclivities, from its bondage, and from its ultimate penalty, helps us to understand that Paul's teaching on the subject is not quite what he meant by freedom from something. He's not saying freedom from law. He's saying freedom from sin, freedom from bondage, freedom from the penalty, freedom from the slavery of a, of a, of a system that rejects Gentile members in Israel, freedom from a system that rejects the ultimate payment of sin, extending the ultimate payment of Yeshua's uh, sacrifice, extending the Gentiles and bringing them in. Right? The, the, the um, system that, that I'm describing about Jewish ethnicity, the, about, about a Jewish-only Torah, it's not that I'm saying that Jewish identity is bondage. Uh, please don't, miss, don't hear me saying that. Boy, if that's what you think I'm saying, then you've grossly misunderstood me. I'm not saying that Jewish, Jewish ethnicity is bondage. I'm not saying that Jews keeping the Torah is bondage. I'm not saying that, that, that the Torah that was given to Israel is bondage. What I am saying is that the Torah as, as self-defined and limited by Jewish ethnicity is bondage. What I am saying is that, a, is that a Torah that is described as Jewish only, that is bondage. What I am saying is that a view of Torah that, that, that um, restricts Gentiles from coming into that uh, Torah that is a view of Torah that is bondage. That mindset is bondage. That concept is bondage. That theology is bondage. That's the point I'm trying to make. To, to, to restrict God, His covenants, His spirit, His Torah, His, His promises, His salvation, to restrict those to Jews only, that whole program is bondage. That's the point I'm trying to make. All right, That is the point I'm trying to emphasize. So don't get me wrong. So, the paradigm set by the Exodus narratives teaches us quite clearly that sin and bondage prevents us from truly worshiping God the way that he deserves to be worshipped. Right? Remember, speaking for God, Moses said what? Let my people go so that they may serve me. End quote. What is Moshe, Moshe implying here? That until they are free... They cannot worship God the way that God designs them to worship, that God created them to worship Him. Sin and shame, sin and bondage prevent you from seeing God clearly and from worshiping Him the way He deserves to be worshipped. So that's why we need to be set free so that we, like the people in this passage, we need, be, we need to be set free so that we can serve God. And then once Messiah Yeshua makes us alive in him and sets us free indeed, we are then free to worship God properly without the fear of condemnation or bondage to sin. Read Romans chapter 8 all over again, the first, say, 12 verses or something like that. There is therefore now no no uh, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was going to say no persecution, but that's not quite right. There is persecution for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation if you are found in Messiah Yeshua. You don't have to worry about the condemnation of sin, the bondage to sin, the slavery of sin. You've been set free from all that. That is true Christian liberty. 
This means we are free to walk into Torah the way God intended it to be walked out. We are free to walk into Torah. We're not free to walk away from it. We're free to walk into it. I'm preaching now. Right? And how are we to walk into it? Do we do it by the power of the flesh? <laughs> not hardly. Read Romans 8 all over again. How are we to walk it out? Well, the answer is quite simple. We walk it out in imitation of Messiah. And how was that? It was by the Spirit and to the glory of God the Father. That's how we walk out Torah. We walk out Torah in imitation of Messiah. We walk it out by the Spirit of the Ruach HaKodesh. And we walk it out to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Okay, we finally made it to our final question. Question number five. What does it mean to be circumcised in Christ? We're kind of coming full circle because we started out this Passover commentary with our um, our, uh, litur- our liturgical reading from Exodus chapter 13, and circumcision was mentioned in that passage. So this last question is going to turn to this particular topic, since we've been talking about it uh, before. And you're going you're gonna to see that these topics about circumcision and, and such in my writings are all kind of interrelated because they all carry with it the same background um, that is necessary to understand Paul's writings and the background that I think is necessary to appreciate the, sub- the covenant of circumcision itself. This last question we'll answer that, over, that we're going to address will actually close out our commentary on Jewish, Christian, Passover-related topics. When the temple stood and sacrifices were a reality, the Torah commands regarding Passover required Jewish and Gentile males to be physically circumcised in order to eat of the meat of lambs slaughtered on the altar. You can recall the um, uh, recall the uh, uh, reference in Exodus twelve forty eight and forty nine. For instance, let me just read those two verses. Um, quote verse forty eight says, "If a stranger shall sojourn with you, uh, the stranger in this passage is the gear, uh, the the person who's not a native born um, descendant of Jacob. That's why we call them strangers or aliens." If the stranger shall sojourn with you, the you, of course, is native-born sons of Israel, native-born sons of Jacob. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. That's physical circumcision that we're, we're talking about. Then he, the stranger, may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. Wow! He'll be as a native of the land? Yes, the native of the land would be the native-born sons of Jacob, those who were the natural first inheritors of the promises that were given to Abraham so long ago, of, the, of that God gave him when he says, you know, um, uh, this is the land that I'm going to give to you and your, your descendants. These were the native, uh, the native-born, the native of the land, Ezrak is the Hebrew word. So the stranger, that, that person who's of foreign extraction, the, the person from the, uh, the nations who's, who's traveling to Israel, and wants to partake of the physical Passover. And the Passover here description, the Passover in question, is actually the, uh, the, 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 the meat of the Passover lamb that was slaughtered in the temple, or in the, the tabernacle, however you want to apply the time frame. So let's keep reading the verse. Then he may come near and keep it, but if he, I'm sorry, he shall be a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. End quote. So uh, the verse... Um, it's telling us that strangers must be physically circumcised in order to eat of the meat of the Passover lamb that was slaughtered there, only within the environs of the uh, temple precinct. Verse 49 reads, quote, There shall be one law, a Torah Tachat, 
for the native, that's what the Hebrew says, Torah Techad. I believe it's Torah Techad. Uh, I'll have to look it up. There should be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. End quote. So we see that basically there's there's not only equality, but there is um, there's a there's one law, one standard that God is imposing upon both groups. One law meaning uh, with within the context, there should be one law regarding circumcision uh, for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And what is that one law? The one law of circumcision here is that they both must be circumcised. Not two different laws, but one law. Now, with with that introduction to this passage and this uh, topic of circumcising Christ, this means, if we read that passage again, this means that if an uncircumcised Gentile believer lived in ancient Israel and was keeping the Passover in his local area because he was unable to, for instance, say, make the journey to Jerusalem to slaughter a lamb, then his physical circumcision, then this physical circumcision commandment was not as relevant for him because he would not be eating meat from lamb slaughtered in the temple anyway, right? To be sure, even though he may not have been physically circumcised as a foreigner, he knew from reading, say, Paul's letters, that he was circumcised in Messiah, and that it was his it was this heart circumcision that was of primary importance anyway. So he didn't have to fret about the fact that he wasn't physically circumcised where he was at. Because if he wasn't going to be making the trek to Jerusalem, then it was a moot point for him anyway. So, let's talk about this heart circumcision. What exactly is it? And, for Gentile Christians, what is its significance? This time I'm going to give you what's called short answer, long answer. The short answer is that to be circumcised in Christ, I think you guys already know where I'm going with this one. I think I'm speaking to the choir. To be circumcised in Christ means that one is saved, basically taking the word circumcision here to refer to circumcision of the heart, indicative of genuine faith in Yeshua, basically. To be sure, a few verses later, um, in Romans we read, quote, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 3. So, circumcision of the heart, as described in in Romans and in Paul's letters, is is Paul's way of saying that you have been set free, that you are a genuine believer. Circumcision, as you recall, implies cutting something away. That's what circumcised, that's what the verb implies, cutting something away, cutting around something, cutting it away, separating two pieces. Whether it is physical foreskin that we're talking about or spiritual unbelief, something gets separated from something else. So circumcised in Christ, if we were to apply the natural into the spiritual, to be circumcised in Christ means that unbelief has been cut away from the heart so that one sees Messiah by faith and such faith saves him. That's why I said circumcising Christ means that one is saved. Now, let's provide a little bit of a longer answer. This is the background needed to understand and appreciate the context of Romans 4 and to substantiate my answer. As if some of you don't believe me, I think most of you do believe me, but there are, there are some out there who are going to say, what? Circumcising Christ doesn't mean that. Well, let's talk about that. The term circumcision in Paul's day quite often implied Jewish identity by context. Wow, that's a shocker. No, it isn't. You just heard me talk about that in the last few answers. <laughs> right? I'm just being funny. Circumcision in Paul's day was functioned as a kind of a, a, what we call a metonym, circumlocution, um, basically a, a synonym for a one word, uh, two words that mean the same thing, or a, a one word that's a substitute for something else. So instead of saying 
um, the Jewish people, oftentimes Paul would say the circumcision or the circumcision faction or the circumcised. Paul was speaking of, for instance, I use this example. In his uh, ministry in Galatians uh, 2, he talks about how that uh, Peter was sent to the circumcised and that Paul was sent to the uncircumcised. And what's Paul trying to say? He's trying to say that Peter was sent to the Jewish people, the circumcised, and that Paul was sent to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. So they func- this phrase circumcision functioned uh, to uh, identify Jews by context. The entire chapter of Romans 4 is actually Paul's exposition to combat the first century mistaken notion that we learned about earlier, and that is that Jews and only Jews were genuine covenant members in Israel. Right? It's bad theology, people. It's bad theology. Recall that Jewish males were circumcised, that is physically circumcised, as eight-day-old baby boys in Leviticus 12.3. And that's, of course, um, rooted in the passage in Genesis chapter 17, where the Abrahamic covenant is actually outlined by God himself. So, in effect, according to common Jewish reasoning, using the passages that they found, Jewish males were actually, quote, born with covenant status, end quote, because Jewishness was the central feature of covenant membership in their day. At least that's the way they self-defined. It's still primarily the way they do today, although not a lot is said because a lot of Christians aren't clamoring for circumcision. They're not clamoring to get into Jewish communities anymore. Christianity has essentially uh, developed its own separate um identity over and against the Jewish people. And so Christianity is comfortable not trying to clamor to belong to uh, Jewish groups anymore like they did in the first century. But in the first century, um, the Judaisms of Paul's day, basically, like I, I, I use this phrase, they micromanaged membership into Jewish Israel. And the only way you could really get into Jewish Israel was through the doorway known as the proselyte of the, cer- the ceremony of the proselyte, basically through the passageway of conversion. In other words, taking on legal Jewish status. And then you essentially, you, you, you attained your covenant membership by becoming a Jew. All right, let's keep reading. The reason circumcision gets brought into Paul's discussion so prominently, and I've got a string of verses here, for instance, Romans 2, 25 through 29, Romans 3, 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 18 and 19, Galatians 2, 12, Galatians 5, 2 through 11, Galatians 6, 15, Ephesians 2, 11, Philippians 3, 3, and then finally I've got Titus 1, verse 10. All of these passages, I want you to go back and look them up. They actually um, use the phrase circumcised or circumcision in one way or another. And the reason we see this so prominently is because by the first century, Israel was using the term circumcision more as a sociological term that referred to Jewish status than as a covenant sign that pointed to the Abrahamic promise of Genesis 17, 9-14. You understand what I'm saying? It's this reason, it's, it's for that reason that Paul has to bring in circumcision so often. In the eyes of these ethnocentric Jews of Paul's day, circumcision was the sign that guaranteed them covenant status and salvation, essentially. Go ahead and read uh, Acts 15, 1 again. So, if a Gentile wished to join Israel, back in Paul's day, a man-made ceremony of the proselyte was prescribed in which one could supposedly, ostensibly, 
change their ethnicity and become Jewish. And because the same prevailing Jewish views believed the Torah to be a Jewish-only document as well, once a person earned their Jewish status, then the Torah became their covenant possession and actually their covenant responsibility. We know that this is the correct understanding of these opening verses um, in Romans because of Paul's line of reasoning later on down in the passage in Romans 4, 9, and 10. In fact, let's read those, that passage. This is Romans 4, 9, and 10. Quote, Is this blessing only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. All right, you understand my point? Those of you who are reading the verse are probably saying, well, Ariel, how do you understand the passage? Why are you bringing circumcision into it the way you're doing? Well, let me paraphrase the passage, the, 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 the uh, two verses here, and insert the meanings that I believe fit the context of Paul's sociological and theological argument regarding the uses of the term circumcision and uncircumcision and things like that, okay? If I were to paraphrase these two verses and insert the implied historical, grammatical, and sociological meanings, they would sound something like this. You ready? Quote, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be generous with my, uh, with my embellishment here. So just listen for a moment, okay? Quote, is this blessing that those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered because the Lord will not count his sin, in a word, salvation, is it only for those with legal Jewish status or also for those who are not Jews, that is, the Gentiles? For we state with certainty that salvation was counted by God to Abraham as righteous in Genesis 15:6, and the scriptures are definitely reliable. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he became Jewish? It was not after, but before he became Jewish. End quote. So I think that's really how Paul's using the verse. I think that's a better way to understand the passage if we understand the sociological meaning that was given to circumcision in Paul's day. I'm not saying that circumcision made Abraham a Jew. What I am saying is that the, the, um, the picture that's being painted by circumcision in Paul's day and the picture that Paul's painting with this limited view of Abraham and circumcision is that Abraham is the father of the Jewish people and that he's also the father of the Gentiles because that's how we have to read the passage. Uh, Abraham became a became um, righteous before he became a Jew, quote-unquote, if we could insert the phrase Jewish as uh, identified by uh, circumcision. Even though... You've got to follow me here very carefully, people. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't actually believe that circumcision, identif uh, circumcision does not um, identify Jewish ethnicity. I don't think it does. I could say it this way. Every Jew is circumcised, but every circumcised person is not a Jew. Right? <laughs> every religious Jew is circumcised, but not every uh, circumcised person is a Jew. So I don't think circumcision turns you into a Jew. But... Um, circumcision was given as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and historically the Jewish people have safeguarded that covenant, have safeguarded that sign more closely than non-Jewish peoples have. So that's all I want to say about it in this uh, setting for now. So basically, I think that's a better way to understand the passage. The notion of um, 
of, quote, Jewish-only Israel, end quote, and a, quote, Jewish-only Torah, end quote, is also corroborated, in case you guys are wondering where I'm getting some of my uh, information. It's also corroborated from reading the surviving non-inspired Pharisaic writings from before and after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, namely the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Talmud, and the other rabbinic writings, etc. So you can go back and, I mean, these days, with access to the internet or just your average library, you can go and research this on your own, and you can see that there's basically a sub-theme that runs throughout the rabbinic literature, and that sub-theme is essentially that all Israel shares a place in the world to come. All Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come. And all Israel and only Israel is defined by her Jewish ethnicity and excludes Gentiles from the nation who wish to participate in the covenants made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So essentially, that's the sub-theme that runs throughout the other rabbinic writings if you care to look it up on your own. These particular extra-biblical resources, in my opinion, help us to better understand the historical, grammatical, and sociological background to our own inspired apostolic writings, viz. the New Testament. So, you don't ever want to let the rabbinic writings replace the authority of the scriptures. However, I think it is wise to bring in extra resources alongside of the Bible that help to gain a better a more accurate, well, I shouldn't say accurate, a more complete background to the biblical text since we know that the Bible only gives us a thumbnail. The Bible only gives us a, uh, a preview. The Bible only gives us a general outline often of, the, uh, of what was going on in, in, in the historical uh, social settings of, of you know, first century Israel, etc. So we have to use extra biblical sources if we wish to um, uh, appreciate the, uh, the background and the context of, of what we're actually reading in our own Bibles. So let me basically conclude this commentary to uh, Pesach 2016, uh, which is appropriately entitled Passover Season of Our Deliverance, Passover Season of Our Freedom. Let me um, close out this last question. Circumcised in Christ does not necessarily mean that physical circumcision is no longer valuable. In fact, there are two verses that I want to end my commentary with. Romans 2.25, For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. End quote. Very good passage for you to contemplate. Circumcision, indeed, is of value, Paul says. And he's even talking about physical circumcision. He's not talking about spiritual circumcision right now. He's talking about physical circumcision. It indeed is a value if you obey the law, right? Good, good passage. I could, I could do a whole midrash on that passage. And then Romans three one and two says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Notice the, the kind of shared, um, implied, uh, contextual, um, similarities in meaning between the phrase Jew and the word circumcision. There, it speaks to that metonymy that I was talking about earlier of circumcision. Um, pointing towards Jewish ethnicity in Paul's day. Not that Paul would say that uh, that uh, Jews are Jews because they're circumcised. I don't think Paul would say that. The theology that theology is bad. Um, rather, uh, what Paul is trying to simply say is that um, those who are circumcised were associated as Jews, and those who were Jews were associated as circumcised, and kind of uh, they they kind of associate one with another. This term Jew and this term circumcision. Not that circumcision means Jewish. 
Please don't misunderstand me. I have to keep saying that over and over again. But what does the verse say? Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. End quote. And so those are the last two verses that I want to end this last question of, of um, what does it mean to be circumcised in Christ. And I hope that you have enjoyed this Passover commentary. I hope that it's been a little bit different than previous commentaries that I have taught on. Again, if you um, wish to read my older 10-year-old commentary, uh, which just because it's 10 years old doesn't mean it's got outdated information. It's just I'm going in a different direction than I, want, than I went 10 years ago. But if you'd like to read the older commentary, shoot me an email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com and I'll be more than happy to shoot you a, cop, a copy of the commentary. And if you want to hear the audio portion, then um, let me figure out a way how to link to that because I'm going to pull it from my from the iTunes um, store, but I'll probably leave a link to the audio file somewhere on my um, website so that you can access them through the links in an email, okay? With that, I wish you all a um, Chag Sameach, a happy festival of Passover. Um, be blessed in Messiah. Uh, I encourage you and admonish you to uh, continue to press in um, in your walk with Messiah, in your walk with Christ, in the freedom of Messiah uh, as you meditate on the, uh, the blood of Messiah this year during this Passover season. May you have a spirit-filled Pesach season. And may the Lord bless you for your obedience. If you like further uh, um, scriptural references to study, at the very bottom of my commentary, there's a there's a list of verses there that you can look up. Um, you know, some from Exodus and Numbers, Joshua. Uh, there's some in Isaiah, Matthew, Luke, and John uh, that I highly recommend that you look them up. Okay, so be blessed. Shalom, everyone. And uh, what do we say next year in Jerusalem? Uh, next year in Jerusalem. Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.